As I mentioned earlier, our guest preacher this morning, Joe Fisher, is the RUF staff worker at Rutgers. He's supported by our church and by our presbytery, so I'm so glad you get a chance to get to know Joe this morning. Um, on a personal note, he and his wife, Kiana, just had a baby girl on January 16th, less than a month ago. Her name is JL. And uh, it's uh, so close. I'm so impressed that he's here to preach this morning. He doesn't even look tired. <laughs> so, Joe, welcome. Well, good morning. A pleasure to be with you. And there is some tiredness in these eyes, but uh, there is joy in these heart as well. It's always a joy to welcome new life into the world. Uh, and it's a joy to worship with the people of God. So it's good to be here uh, this morning. As Pastor Dan mentioned, I uh, am the campus minister of RUF at Rutgers. We just started in the fall of 2022. So about 17 weeks in on campus, and the Lord has been good and kind to us. Uh, if you'd like to, to follow up and keep with the things that are going on at Rutgers, there is a little um, a sheet on your way out. If you put down your email address, we have a monthly newsletter if you'd like to follow along in that way. So why don't you turn with me this morning to Acts 18, uh, verses 1 through 11. The text is printed also uh, in the bulletin. And uh, as we come to Acts 18, we're kind of jumping into the middle of the book of Acts. Um, but this passage this morning really reflects the theme of the book as a whole which is how the risen Lord Jesus spreads his gracious rule to the ends of the earth through his people. That's why it's called the book of Acts. It's the acts of the risen Lord uh, through his people. And this morning we're going to look at Acts 18, and we're going to see how the risen Lord extends his gracious rule into the city of Corinth. So read with me God's word, Acts 18, 1 through 11. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And there he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come home, come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had ordered all Jews to leave Rome. And Paul went to see them, and because he was a tent maker as they were, he stayed and worked with them. Every Sabbath he reasoned in the synagogue, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. But when they opposed Paul and became abusive, he shook out his clothes in protest and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent of it. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Then Paul left the synagogue and went next door to the house of Titius Justice, a worshiper of God. Crispus, the synagogue leader, and his entire household believed in the Lord, and many of, them, many of the Corinthians who heard Paul believed and were baptized. One night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision, Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one is going to attack and harm you, because I have many people in this city. So Paul stayed in Corinth for a year and a half, teaching them the word of God. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Let us pray. Our God, in your light, we see light. So we ask that you might send forth your spirit to illumine our hearts and our minds. Would you warm our affections, O God, for you and for your word? Would you grant us the faith to receive your word, to cherish it, and to practice it in our lives, we ask in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Well, central to our identity as Christians is two central affirmations, that Jesus Christ is king, 
and that we are citizens of his kingdom. Now, the kingdom of God is simply his realm and his rule. It's the place where we experience his blessing, his grace, his, his healing, uh, his salvation. And Paul, in our passage, comes to Corinth as a herald of this kingdom. He comes into Corinth and he begins, enters into the city and begins declaring to the, the citizens of this kingdom that there is a king and his name is Jesus. And that he invites you to come and to enter into his gracious realm. Now here's the thing that I want us to see this morning. That, that while there are, are certain aspects of what Paul is doing here in Corinth and, and aspects to Paul's ministry as a whole, which are unique to him, there are other things that Paul does that really provide for us an example of how God's kingdom is continuing to advance in the world today. It's a kingdom expansion that you and I are actually called to participate in. And so as we read this passage of scripture, we read it not as a third-party observer to some obscure history that took place thousands of years ago. But as we come to this account this morning, we come to it looking at an example of how Jesus wants to uh, use us and utilize us to advance his purposes in the world. And so the question that I want us to consider this morning is how can you spread God's grace? How can you uh, bestow his blessing? How can you make known his saving rule? Because if you call yourself a citizen of the king, that's part of the calling. That's part of what you were called to do. And now, as someone who is currently engaged in new work at Rutgers, this is a question that's heavy on my heart. How, what does it look like to advance the kingdom of God here at Rutgers University? And what I think we have here in Acts 18 is a model for thinking through the answer. I think what Paul gives us is a set of principles and practices uh, for how we can see God's gracious rule spread amongst our communities and, and even to the ends of the earth, as God should call us. And so there's four elements to this model, four principles and practice, practices that advance God's kingdom rule. And they are, first of all, a strategic place. Secondly, a saving message. Third, a supportive network. And finally, a sovereign God. Four S's to help hopefully aid our memory, a strategic place, a saving message, a supportive network, and a saving God. Well, we begin first with this strategic place. If you were to read back in Acts 17, it's this very colorful account of, of, of Paul's missionary endeavors in Athens, the great city of Athens. But now, in verse 18, we learn that Paul has left Athens and he has come to Corinth. But this raises a question, why Corinth? There's lots of cities Paul could have gone, lots of places he could have visited. Why did he go to Corinth? Well, Luke doesn't really give us a specific reason. But if you were to zoom out and you were to take into consideration the whole of uh, Paul's path, his, his missionary endeavors, you'd begin to see this pattern that emerge. You see, Paul has a singular focus, right? Paul wants to reach as many people as possible with the news that Jesus Christ is king. And so if you want to reach as many people as possible, where do you go? You go to the city. And so Paul branches out and he, and he goes to Corinth. And if you look at Paul's missionary journeys, what you see is this, this pattern of him bringing the gospel to major cities in the empire, especially those that were Roman provinces. Now what's interesting about Corinth is that it fits the bill for both. <laughs> 
that along with Ephesus, Corinth was actually one of the most important cities that Paul ever visited. One scholar notes that by the time Paul had visited Corinth, it was, quote, well on the way to becoming the largest, most prosperous city in Greece. So Corinth was a capital city in the Roman uh, province. It was a, a center of communications. It was a center of commercial activity. Uh, on a biannual basis, they would host these kind of mini Olympics, the Isthmian Games. And you'd have all of these travelers pouring into the city of Corinth. And Paul sees Corinth, and it becomes this ideal place to sort of plant a flag for the kingdom. Because Paul understands that as the gospel reaches the city of Corinth, it is going to spread out to other areas, given the nature of the city being this commercial and communication hub. Now you may ask, okay, that's great. Why, why point all of this out? Because I think what it suggests to us is that as you pray, as you plan, as, as you pursue endeavors to advance God's gracious rule in the world, we would do well to consider Paul's practice. We would do well to ask ourselves, where are strategic places that we can make known the gospel? Now, I would suggest to you this morning that one of the most strategic places in our contemporary time is the, the college campus. Now, you may say, of course you'd say that. Of course you'd say that. Well, Indulge me for a moment, if you would. Let's put on for a moment together our, our little sociology caps. Consider for a second the demographic of the university. On any university campus in America, what you come across is this huge cross-section of people from a variety of cultures, from a variety of classes, from a variety of religious backgrounds, and all of them are packed into this campus for four years, and they eat they live, they study, and they play together. Add to this the fact that during these four years of their lives, they're going to be making some big decisions. They're going to be asking questions like, what will be my vocation? What career will I pursue? They're going to ask, what kind of people will I associate with? Perhaps even, who will I marry? They're going to ask, what am I going to, or how will I live? What will I live for? Big questions. And on top of that, they're in a stage of their life when people are generally most open to discussions about the most basic matters of life. Barna uh, did a poll, and they found that 71% uh, of people who significantly change their faith do so before the age of 30. So they're in this, this time of life that is extremely impressionable. And, and the college campuses of our day are filled with um, the most diverse and least religious generation that this country has ever seen. So there's great work to be done, a great opportunity to reach students with the good news of Jesus Christ, to send them out as servants into the church, into the communities, and even into the world. Now you might say, well, great, I'm glad that you're at Rutgers, but where does that leave the rest of us? Do I have to be on a college campus? Do I have to be in a place of of significance, a place of influence to actually be doing kingdom work. Not at all. Not at all. In fact, think about what Paul uh, says in his letter to the Philippians, right? He may have prioritized his ministry to the cities, but he could write this. He, he's writing the letter of Philippians from a prison, from a Roman prison, hardly a place that you and I would consider to be strategic, and yet this is what he says. He says in Philippians 1, verses 12 to 13, I want you to know, brothers, 
that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. How's that for some perspective? That even in a Roman prison, Paul understood there is strategic work to be done here. There is gospel advancement to make. The kingdom of God is still going forth. And what this means for you is that regardless of where God has placed you, he has work for you to do. He has kingdom work for you to be engaged in. You know, some of you may work in centers of commerce. You may work in places of culture. But others of you may find yourself in places that you just deem unimportant. And perhaps others would look at your work and think, well, it's work, but that's about all that it is. But the the point that Paul, uh, that I would like you to see this morning is that wherever you are, God has given you opportunities to be engaged in kingdom advancement that there are things for you to do. Because wherever you are, there is righteousness to be cultivated, there is evil to be overcome, and there is good news to be shared. And where that's happening, the kingdom of God is advancing. Where righteousness is being cultivated, there is the kingdom of God. Where evil is being overcome, there is the kingdom of God. Where the good news is being preached, there is the kingdom of God. And you can do that whether you're in a prison, you're on a college campus, you're at home with your children, wherever you might find yourself, there is work to be done. But insofar as God does give us freedom to plan, he gives us freedom to to consider, there's wisdom in thinking, God, where would you have me to invest? Where are the strategic places to bring the good news? And so uh, that is something to consider, but there's more than just a strategic place, right? What What does Paul do once he's identified this place? He comes to Corinth, he, he, the strategic place of ministry. What does he do? Let me ask you, what would you do? Maybe you'd come into Corinth and you'd say, all right, let's set up a food pantry. Or you'd enter into Corinth and say, all right, let's uh, begin a, a movement against political corruption in this place. Or let's set up a medical pop-up clinic to help meet physical need. What would you do if you enter into Corinth? Well, what does Paul do? Notice what he does in verses 4 to 5. He goes where the people are, and it tells us that he begins to reason and to persuade, and to preach. And the thing that he is reasoning and persuading and preaching about is that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. Now, Messiah just means anointed one. It was all about the expectations of the Jewish people that that God would provide an anointed king. And Paul shows up at Corinth, and he starts pointing his hearers to Jesus, and he says, this is the king. This is the anointed king that all of our human hearts ache for. What this shows us right from the jump is that one of the primary means for advancing the kingdom of God is through the proclamation of Jesus. That if you want to be engaged in advancing kingdom of God in this world, then it's, it, it means that we have to let people know that there is a king, that there is a risen king who through his life, through his death, and through his resurrection has made it possible for you and I to enter into his kingdom. And this is the saving message that Paul proclaimed wherever he went. He writes later in 1 Corinthians 2, reflecting on his time here in Acts 18, he says, For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And you notice the kind of um, 
response that this message elicited. First, there's this, the opposition. It says that, that Paul, he goes to the synagogue and he begins preaching, but they oppose him and they become abusive. How's that for a response? But then Paul doesn't give up, right? He keeps going and he continues to preach and he comes along Titius and, and Crispus. And in their case, there's belief, right? Crispus and his whole family believe in the Lord Jesus. They enter through the waters of baptism into the church. These two very stark responses. And they're the, the responses that continue even to this day, right? That when you open your mouth and you begin to say that Christ is king, some people will realize Yes, he is the king. He is the one who, whose rule I need, who will bring flourishing and peace and joy. But for others, it will bring abuse. It will bring ostracization. It will bring marginalization. It will be, bring opposition. But what you need to see is that Paul doesn't change the message. Right? If I was Paul, there would be tempting, if I were to roll up into a city and begin preaching and they begin to oppose me and abuse me, I might need to reconsider my strategy. Like, hmm, there are other things I can talk about that are true and might get me a better audience here. Maybe I'll talk about the beauty of the morality of Christian living and, and how that can really lead to flirt. No, Paul says, I'm going to keep preaching about Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And he does. And, and there's this response of, of, faith and, of faith. And so as we think about advancing the kingdom of God, whether it's here in, in Montclair or the surrounding region or on a place like Rutgers, you have to ask yourself, what are you going to lead with? What is going to be the thing that you say, this is of first importance? Right? Is it going to be visions for, for social healing and human flourishing? Is it going to be crusades for mending the moral fabric of our nation? Is it going to be uh, trying just to create a loving community? All of those things may be good things, but they're not the primary thing. The primary thing that Paul shows us that we need is to preach the good news, to, to declare the saving message, even better, the saving person of Jesus Christ, to, to help people see Jesus and him clothed in his gospel. That's what people need. Because in order for God's kingdom to be advanced, people have to love the king. Right? You can heal bodies, you can mend broken relationships, you can do all sorts of good things, but if people do not know Jesus as their king, then they re still remain outside of his kingdom. They still remain at odds with the one who they need to be reconciled to. And so we must come and say and declare this saving message that Jesus Christ is indeed king, but, but he's the king with a cross. Right? What did Paul say? He said, I, I came and I desired to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. See, the kings of this world, they, they wield their power. And they'll amass followings and, and they'll lead by force. They, they lead with the, your life for mine. Jesus is the king with the cross who says, my life for yours. And when you hear that, do you not want to say, yes, come be my king? And that is what Paul leads with as he goes into Corinth. He wants people to know that although you might be a rebel by nature, you can become a citizen and an heir by grace. And friend, if you're here this morning and you've perhaps heard of this King Jesus before, but you remain outside of his kingdom, 
hear this plea that, that he is still the king who calls you this day. That even now he calls you to enter into his gates with praise and, and to receive the blessing of knowing him as Lord. You know, when I go on to Rutgers University, this is what I want students to know. I want them to know that Jesus Christ is the king with a cross. And it's something that you should want your neighbor to know, your family member to know, your coworker to know, because it's a message that saves. Paul says in Romans chapter 1 that he's not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God unto salvation. I want you to just think for a moment about that statement, that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Paul's making a very profound point. He's telling us that, that the words of the gospel are actually verbal words that have power in them. That in their, their verbal form, they actually do things. That the gospel actually lifts people up. It actually transforms communities, transforms lives. That as you open your mouth and speak the gospel, as you yourself reflect on the gospel, power is released. And it is a power, Paul says, unto salvation. And it's, it's salvation in the fullest sense. It's salvation not just from our own uh, personal sin and selfishness, but it's also salvation at, at the communal level. Just notice for a moment the two men or the two kinds of men who come to faith in, in the city of Corinth. First of all, you have Titius Justice. He's referred to as a worshiper of God which means that this man was a, a Gentile. He was not of the people of God. Uh, and yet, here he finds himself, or here Paul finds himself in his house, and he becomes a believer. But notice who else becomes a believer. There's Crispus, the synagogue leader. Here are two men that up until this point of history would have had absolutely nothing to do with each other. In fact, they would have been locked in hostility with one another. And Paul comes and he says, Jesus Christ is king. They believe, they're baptized, and now they're brothers. Who would have thought? But this is what the kingship of Jesus Christ does. It brings reconciliation, not just with God, but it brings reconciliation in communities where, where there was once hostility, where we were once, as Paul says elsewhere, hating one another and hated by others. Now there is brotherly love. That's what the gospel can do. That is the salvation that it brings. And so Paul comes, comes to Corinth and he concerns himself first and foremost with making known the saving message of Jesus. But you might think, this, again, this is good, but I'm not Paul. You want me to reason and persuade people? What if they abuse me? What if they oppress me? What, what role is there for me? Is there any other work to be done? I'm not sure I possess the skill to do it. Well, there's still a very important part for all of us to play in the advancing of God's kingdom. Notice, notice how everything starts for Paul at Corinth. In verses 2 and 3, we read that uh, when Paul comes to Corinth, there he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had ordered all Jews to leave Rome. And Paul went to see them, and because he was a tent maker as they were, he stayed and he worked with them. Now this is a very interesting point to make. Paul comes into this new city and the first thing he does is he tries to find other Christians. And these Christians who he finds, they provide him with lodging 
and he begins to labor alongside them in the same trade. Now you may think, well, how are they Christians? It says that they were, were Jews. Well, they were Jews ethnically, but we have good reason to believe that they were Christians. The reason that they were expelled from Rome is because uh, Claudius was kicking out Jews who were speaking about Christ. And so here Paul finds himself in Corinth, and he gets connected with this husband and wife. Here they are engaged in this tent-making trade, and they welcome him in with hospitality and care. They bring him into his home. And Paul will elsewhere refer to this couple as his fellow workers in Christ, those who risked their life for him. But notice as well in verse 5, we learn that in verse 5, when Silas and Timothy come from Macedonia, that Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching. Why point that out? Well, you see, what's going on is, is prior to the arrival of Silas and Timothy, Paul was likely working as a tent maker during the week. And then what would happen is on the Sabbath, he would go into the synagogue and he would begin to reason and to persuade that Jesus was the Messiah. But all of a sudden, Silas and Timothy come and Paul puts down his tools and he starts preaching exclusively. Why? Well, Paul tells us why. He tells us in 2 Corinthians eleven nine. 9, he says, quote, And when I was with you and needed something, I was not a burden to anyone. For the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied what I needed. In other words, the reason why Paul could put down his tools and pick up the pulpit, as it were, was because the churches were supplying for him financially. The reason he was able to devote himself exclusively to preaching is because he was given this gift from these churches that enabled him to be fully devoted to his calling. And the reason why I'm pointing all of this out is because we need to see that even though Paul is the one preaching, even though he is the one who's persuading, it would be impossible for him to do this if it were not for this supportive network of people that God has put around him. I think about Aquila and Priscilla. They're, they're just trying to make a living. They've been kicked out of their homes. They're, they're here in this foreign city. They're trying to probably build a new clientele. And along comes Paul, and they're like, yeah, you can take some of our customers. And yeah, you can stay in our house. And yeah, you can use this place as your home base. Right? And they're not alone. There's this church, these churches who Paul says elsewhere gave out of their poverty in order to allow Paul to preach the gospel. And this gift is brought by Silas and Timothy. Now, you know, if you know anything about the ancient world, traveling was not like it is today. It's not like they hopped on, you know, United Flight UA555 and just landed in Corinth with a gift. No, they would have made a very treacherous journey in order to get this gift to Paul. But they were committed to doing it because they knew he had a mission that he needed to be engaged in. And so Priscilla and Aquila, Silas and Timothy, the church in Macedonia, all of them are advancing the kingdom of God by playing this role of support and partnership. And people of God, you have a part to play in supporting God's work here in Montclair. That through your hospitality, through your service, through your, through your generosity, you're not just making the ministry of Redeemer, you know, making it keep going. You're advancing the kingdom of God. You are actively participating in what God is doing here. You're advancing the kingdom because God's work cannot go forward without a supportive network. 
a supportive network where everybody is asking, what gifts and graces has God given me, and how can I utilize them in this place and at this time? You know, when I go onto a campus like Rutgers, I know that I don't go alone. I go with a whole army of support. I go with the support of this church, with the support of other churches, and it buoys my soul to know that, that there is this army of people behind me coming with their prayers and with their generosity, and it's enabling the gospel to go forth at a place like Rutgers. And the same is true at a place like Redeemer. The ministry goes forth when all of us are asking, God, what, what place do you have me? What role would you have me to play? As you read Acts 18, everybody has a role. No one is kind of sidelined or on, put on the shelf. Everybody has a role. And so what gifts has God given you? What graces has he bestowed upon you? And how can you use them to get in the game and to be a part of what God is doing here in this place? and even to the ends of the earth. But there's one final element that we need to consider. Because anytime you try to promote the advance of God's kingdom in the world, you are sure to face opposition. Whether that comes in the form of opposition from without, or perhaps deep discouragement from within, or maybe both, <laughs> there is sure to be opposition. And so we must be reminded finally that ruling and reigning over all of our ministry endeavors, there is a sovereign and gracious God. Look with me at verses 9 and 10. It says, At one night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision, Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you. And no one is going to attack and harm you, because I have many people in this city. There were lots of difficulties at Corinth. We learn of some of them, right? That the, the Jewish leaders oppose Paul, that they are abusive towards him. And Paul himself, writing later in Corinthians, he says that when he came to the Corinthians, he says that he came in weakness and with great fear and trembling. That's, that's the great apostle Paul. <laughs> weakness and fear and trembling. And so you have this this opposition from without, you have this fear and trembling from within, and you ask yourself, what kept this man going? How did Paul keep preaching in light of all of these realities? He kept going because he had the encouragement of King Jesus. Right? He heard the words of his Lord, don't be afraid, keep on preaching the good news about me, for I am with you. Right? These are the words that God has spoken to his people throughout the ages, right? What did he say to Joshua? You read Joshua 1, it's like every other sentence is, do not be afraid, for I am with you. And this is the promise that God always gives to his people. He gave it to his disciples in Matthew 28, lo, I am with you even unto the ends of the age. It's this great comforting assurance that wherever you go, whatever you do, when you are serving the Lord, he is with you. He has your back. You are God's servant, and he is your God. And this is something that, you know, you need to rest in daily. And I go, when you go, when I go onto a place, a campus like Rutgers, there's this culture that's apathetic at best and antagonistic at worst, right? I need to know that God is with me, that the Lord Jesus Christ is, is going in front of me. And you might find yourself in vocational spaces or perhaps even uh, social spheres where you feel this sense that it's not safe to be a Christian here. 
that you feel that you can't fully live out your identity as a citizen of the kingdom. You might experience opposition. You might experience marginalization. And so how are you going to remain faithful? You need to hear the words of King Jesus. Don't be afraid. I am with you even to the end of the age. But there's one other element in the Lord's word of assurance. He says that no one is going to attack and harm you. It's a very interesting phrase. He says, because I have many people in this city. Now, think about it. Paul has just come to Corinth. It's very unlikely that what God means is, hey, I'm going to build you a mega church and no one is going to oppose you because you're just going to have this huge, massive crowd at Corinth. As far as we know right now, he's got Crispus and his family. He's got Titius, Priscilla, Quill, and him. Hardly a lot of people. So what is the Lord saying when he says, I have many people in this city? I think the point that is being made is, is one related to God's divine foreknowledge of the success of the gospel at Corinth. See, Paul is afraid. He's, he's shaking. He's wondering, am I really called here? Is this really worth it? Or should I take my little group of five and let's get on and get out of here as fast as we can? But the Lord speaks to me and says, no, I have many people here. People who, although they have not yet believed in him, according to his eternal purpose, they already belong to him. And that gives Paul the freedom to keep on preaching. Now, when you go into the world with these two promises, the promise of the Lord's protection and his presence and the promise that when you open your mouth, things will happen because he is the God who is in control of all things, it should give you deep and abiding encouragement, deep and abiding strength to carry out God's work, right? To know that, that I can open my mouth and I can speak the words of the shepherd. And as Jesus says, my sheep know my voice and they hear me. This gives us great boldness, great confidence in what we do. And so family of God, know this, that God is with you, that he will protect you, and that he knows his own. And so don't be silent. Open your mouth, keep on speaking, and know that life is found with him. And so friends, this morning, you need to know that the kingdom of God is advancing at Montclair. It's going forth at Rutgers. It's going throughout the world, and God is at work, and his purposes will prevail. And the amazing thing is that he is inviting you to participate with him in his work. He's calling you to think strategically about where you're going to invest your time and your talents and your resources. He wants you to think about, how am I going to support the work that he is doing? And he's given you a saving message. He's giving you uh, the power of God unto salvation that continues to renew hearts and bring renewal even in your own life. But when you get discouraged and when you wonder, is anything happening? Is God's kingdom really going forth? Remember that over all of it is our sovereign God. And that's why Jesus taught us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so we can pray with our Lord towards that end. Pray with me. Our God, we thank you that you are a God who is at work. That ever since Jesus Christ died and rose again, from that moment forward, the gospel has continued to go forth. And, and Paul can say that although he is in chains at times, the gospel is unchained. 
So Lord, we thank you that you are king and that you are continuing to bring people under your gracious and loving rule. And we are a marvel at the fact that you would invite us to participate in that work. God, we ask that you give us the grace to do it, the humility uh, to trust you, and the confidence that comes with knowing that you are our God and that you are for us. We ask these things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.